and welcome to Nerd, Nerd Alert! Whoop, whoop. <laughs> Before we get started, I just want to take a brief moment to say that as residents of Los Angeles County, we acknowledge our presence, including virtual presence, on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Gabrielina Tungva people. Hi, everybody. I'm Caroline, and I would like to acknowledge that I am speaking to you as a resident of the unceded territories of the Ramaytush Ailoni, the original peoples of the San Francisco Peninsula. And also, my pronouns are her, her, hers, she, also her. I think I said her a couple times. All right. <laughs> That's all good. Uh, I'm Bridget, pronouns she, her, hers. And I'm Jen, like a goddess, you know. She, her, hers, because I'm a glorious gal. You're welcome, folks. You are a goddess, Jen. <laughs> I know. Thank you. So welcome back to our podcast where we're going to discuss more Marvel villains. Uh, yeah, I'm really glad, really excited to be doing the second parter to this. It's it's expanded a lot more than, than I realized it would. But like then again, this is us, so... Yeah, that that's usually the case. It's like when you get the three of us talking, um, it it will be a while until we stop talking. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, that's that's the fun of hanging out with us. Um, and let's see. So yeah, I'm I'm really excited for the villains podcast. I think that this is one of those sort of big topics where people just kind of are like, oh yeah, Marvel villains. I know everything that is to know. But it's like the more we talk about it, the more kind of interesting and fun ideas that we uh, come across. So, yeah. Yeah, because some of these end up being more complex than we thought, or they end up being funnier than we originally thought. Seriously, some of these dudes were just like, wow, how, how is someone like not slapped them for being so stupid? Or we're just scrambling with their names. Like, I know the actor name, but do we know the character name? I don't know. Evil ficus. <laughs> Evil ficus. <laughs> yeah, so this podcast is part two, Return of the Evil Ficus, or <laughs> Evil Ficus Strikes Back, or Attack of the Evil Ficus, whatever you prefer. Oh, so many references to the Evil Ficus. And will we stop here? No, because as it turns out, there are just so many villains in the MCU that are just... Like, why are you there? Like, I get that you were meant to do A, B, C or whatever, but did it go towards the main plot? No, not, not really. Not really. So the evil ficus will make its return. Let's see which of our amazing Marvel villains. <laughs> I say amazing, partially sarcastic. <laughs> see which of our villains here becomes replaced by the evil ficus. Yeah, um, while we were looking through our, you know, our little cheat sheet for the villains so we can actually kind of remember their names, um, I noticed that one of them was listed as unforgettable villain number three, and I just assumed it was sarcasm, but apparently it was a typo <laughs> for forgettable <laughs> villain number three. Uh, oh, man. And you would think that, like, forgettable or sarcasm unforgettable villains would stop at three, but no. No, there's there's plenty more. Oh, my gosh. These guys, man, just thank goodness for the internet or else I would not remember. 
I know the um, internet has been super helpful as far as this is concerned, <laughs> but you know, maybe yeah. it would have been fun to do a podcast where we literally just say like, well, I don't know, then uh, Jude Law does that thing and then they <laughs> they get in a fight with Jeff Bridges and uh, uh, Guy Pierce <laughs> has got fire powers for some reason. How did Guy Pierce get fire powers? <laughs> Narrowed down by celebrities only. Yeah. You're right. It's just celebrities. Um, no, no actual character names. <laughs> exactly. All right. So before we get started on the last film of phase one and also um, phases, I think phase three at this point, um, I was kind of thinking that it might be good to kick it off with a discussion of what is it we consider a villain? Because at the beginning of last episode, we posed the question, what do we look for in a villain? What do we want in a villain? But now I think we're getting into phase three and what we're starting to see are more characters who are kind of tangential to the villains who there are real questions about whether or not they are a villain. And also, you know, just in general, when we are looking at media, I think it's hard to judge a good or a bad villain, you know, or a well-executed or not well-executed villain if you, we don't have a good idea of what we think a villain is, you know. Um, so I would oppose the question, what, what do we think is a good, uh, what do we think a villain is within a story and as a person? And I mean, I guess maybe in real life, but I don't know. I, I don't think we want to go there. Um, because that's one of those things where in real life, it can be very, very difficult to say, you know, and people will have radically different views based on, um, you know, what sources they're looking at, where they come from, what their background is. You know, there are some historical figures who some people consider to be like the most evil people in history and other people consider to be national heroes. So um, that's that's a uh, that's a big question in real life. But what mm. do we think is that in, in fiction? How do we feel that that works in fiction? I mean, for me, I just think of, I think of domination and I don't just mean like world domination, you know, but like <laughs> sort of like it could be interpersonal. It could be at the micro level in terms of, you know, someone, you know, wanting power or control or, or prestige or, or just to feel like important or entitled or, you know, what have you, you know, sort of asserting their own selves, their own desires over others, not really being concerned about the greater good, let alone another human being's good, you know, um, or whoever they're facing, whoever their, like, quote-unquote opponent is, you know, it's sort of, like, yeah, it's, like, inflicting this, like, I have power over you, I have this over you, is is kind of how I contextualize, like, villainhood. Yeah, that's a good point, because, like, for me, it's always the actions of the villains. Like, it's someone who can willingly hurt another person like for their own gain because that person opposes their view or something that they don't like. And it's someone who does evil things unnecessarily because there are moments in real life and in fiction where someone has to do something bad for the greater good. You know, there's no other way around it, but then you'll see that the character still has a conscience about it. They still feel bad or they still like question themselves. But then you've got those that do these bad things. They, like, kill children, blow up cities or whatever, and yet they feel nothing. They think, like, no, it had to be done. They don't feel the least bit bad. They don't feel the least bit guilty. And yet 
there are those who just do it just because they can or because they're like, you know what? This person's beneath me for reasons. They do not deserve to, to live because in the end, they feel like they're the ones who can decide who should live or die, in my opinion. So these are the people who are the truly heinous, the truly evil, who are willing to hurt other people for their own personal gain. That's how I define a villain. Yeah, I, I think those are some really good points. And I think my definition is probably fairly similar as well. Um, you know, we've discussed this idea of, you know, motivation or empathy or remorse. We've also discussed this idea of domination and kind of the way a villain relates to other people in that they, you know, they lack empathy or compassion or, you know, even acknowledgement of other people. Um, and so, yeah, my, my definition is somewhat similar. I think I sort of break a villain down by three categories. Um, the first one is they have to be an antagonist in the story. You know, they have to be a source of conflict. If they're a very, very bad person, but they're just kind of off on the sidelines and they're not the um, the motivator of the primary conflict, I wouldn't really call them a villain. Again, they're still a real bad person, but if they're not causing the conflict of the story um, I, I would put them as a supporting character or a minor antagonist or something, but not the villain. To me, the villain has to be the main antagonist and you can have like secondary villains, um, but they still have to be part of the main conflict. Um, so that's my sort of story-based criteria. And then once you go past antagonist, because antagonist could mean anything, um, it can be actually the person who's most morally justified in the story. It can be someone who's equally justified as long with the, along with the hero, or it can be someone who, you know, maybe is doing something that's kind of bad, but not that bad to me. The second thing is that the villain, you know, has to do, has to be doing something that is really genuinely bad for, um, you know, something that is heinous, they have to be hurting people, they have to be killing people, they have to be crossing some kind of moral line. And then the third part is what we said before is the motivation, the reasoning behind it, how they react to it, you know, um, if they are doing something that is morally reprehensible, but they have a very good reason for doing that, I have more trouble calling them a villain. Um, because of their motivation and their conception of their own actions. You know, if they think that what they're doing, uh, the best way I've heard it put by someone is there are characters who think that what they're doing is right. And there are characters who think that what they're doing is necessary. If they're doing something horrible and they're absolutely convinced it's right, I'm more willing to call them a villain than if they are convinced that it is necessary. Um, so, so that's how I break it down. It's like the role they play in the story. Are they in the antagonist? Are they morally reprehensible? And what is their justification or their motivation for doing the things that they do? Yeah, I think that's a really good definition. Because as we go through the rest of the Marvel villains list, there's some that you feel sorry for, or some where you're like, okay, so-and-so kind of has a point, or what have you. And then others where you're just like, man, you're just the worst. You, do, you got what you deserve. Yeah, that, that is definitely the case. And I think we've already kind of been exploring um, some characters who bring up some of those questions. For the most part, they are, you know, pretty straightforward bad guys. But we've also discussed, you know, when we talked about Hydra, bad guys who might think that they are genuinely doing the right thing 
or when we've discussed, you know, Loki, it's like, okay, how much do we consider him a villain? Because he kind of moves around and we're also not sure how much of his actions are, you know, of his own volition. Um, so, so yeah, that's already come up, but I think it's going to start coming up a lot more in phase three. Um, so, so yeah, without further ado on to phase Wait, we can't do phase three yet because we're still need to finish out phase two with Ant-Man. So let's finish out phase two. All right, let's go. Oh, man. Who's the villain of Ant-Man again? Um, Aaron Cross. Uh, oh, gosh. What's his villain name? He's Yellow the- Jacket. Yellow Jacket. There we go. That's right. Who cares about this guy? I don't remember him. Yeah, he... I only remember him because I like Ant-Man a lot and have seen it multiple times. Um, but also, once again, he, I think he rivals um, Malekith for most forgettable. Who's that? Who's Malekith? Who are you talking about? <laughs> oh, you're right. You're right. Who is that? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think he, he is one of the... I think maybe if, if we can say... Yeah, he's one of the most forgettable villains. Um, he's a bad guy in a suit. He wants to use the Pym Particle to sell weapons. Um, he doesn't like Hank Pym because he feels like he should be the heir to his... Um, like uh, his, his empire, his technology. But, you know, Hank has to go and give it to his daughter. Who's, a who is, you know, his relative. <laughs> yeah, his relative. And then it's like he brings in Scott, this ex-con who, you know, God forbid, is a nice dude who wants to do some good in the world. Um, and so he's pissed about that. And I think um, Hope does have a line about how the pim particles, and, and I think Hank also says that the pim particles do cause psychological problems if you've been exposed to them for too long, which is why he can't use the suit anymore. So, you know, we could make the case that at some extent, you know, Darren is kind of a, a, a bad person who was driven over the line um, because he was messing with pim particles too much. Um, and they kind of act like, you know, lead poisoning in real life does or something like that. Um, mm. but yeah, that, that's about all there is to him. Um. <laughs> yeah, for me, like, I don't care if he's gone insane because of the pimp particles. The dude threatened a child. For me, that's like, no, no redemption for you. You threatened a child. Yeah, that's that's really the only thing he does that we care about is try to hurt Cassie because, you know, and that's an example of how the stakes do not have to be huge for us to care. In fact, it can sometimes be better if they are more personal. And, and that's kind of the case I keep making for why I'm so fond of the Ant-Man movies is because they they do keep it very small. Um, yes, that, that pun, pun intended. Is, yeah, the pun's <laughs> intended. I can't get away from that pun. Um, but, you know, it. It makes us, I think, for for a lot of people, you know, really huge death, doom, destruction in big numbers is hard to wrap your head around. Um, and also, you know, I'm not a big fan of when the world is just threatened because that, that always feels like a cheat to me. It's like, well, you're the audience. You happen to live in the world. So we're just going to say the villain wants to destroy the world and you should care instead of like you know, getting us to care about a fictional culture or, you know, a place that isn't real, again, since we're talking about sci-fi and fantasy, or, you know, even like a real city, you know, getting us to care about 
um, you know, a real city or a real town or a real place in, in the context of the story instead of just being like, oh, it's the world. You live there. They're going to blow it up. You don't want that, right? Okay, so you're invested. <laughs> and yeah, definitely. We're not really invested because we know they're not going to blow up the world, you know? Um, yeah, we're but... still here watching this movie, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's a, a fair point. But, like, they could kill a character we like. I mean, I don't think Marvel would just, like, kill a little kid in front of us in a movie called Ant-Man, but... Um, you know, theoretically it could happen. And so threatening Cassie is a, you know, a really good way to make the stakes very personal. And also it justifies um, Scott resorting to very desperate desperate measures to stop Yellow Jacket when he goes subatomic. So that is another, another motivating factor. So yeah, Darren Cross, not, not very interesting. Um, as a character no as a concept yes because i do like the idea of hank having like a protege of sorts that who feels snubbed you know because like he didn't get the thing he felt entitled to you know that's that is a trope that's worked time and time again that's great but Mm -hmm. this guy just i don't know i i honestly don't care much about him i didn't care much about him until again he threatened cassie and by the time we're done with this podcast, I'm not going to remember his name. Yeah. And that is a really good point you make, Jen, is that, you know, resentment is a very strong motivator when it comes to villains. And it's one of those things where, you know, from the outside, we can all tell when someone is behaving out of resentment and we can all tell that it's bad. But when you're in it, it's really hard to get over it. You know, if it's um, if you feel like you've been cheated or you've been left out or just you know you're frustrated that someone else is better at something than you by you know natural coincidence and like if there was a way to play up this idea that like you know he really worked super hard and wanted to be Hank Pym's successor really badly and he always felt that hope just kind of had everything handed to her you know maybe that resentment or like he had a real reason to be angry at Scott or something that resentment, you know, might be more relatable or understandable or compelling, but it isn't because we know so little about him and he's given so little time to kind of develop. Um, But at the same time, you know, if we wanted to make him less relatable and more hateable, you could lean into the word you use, Jen, was entitlement, you know, and that's something where we see a lot of that in real life. You know, we see really unpleasant, mediocre people who are usually a certain gender and a certain ethnicity, just going to say, and who think that they are entitled to certain things. And they are not. And when that gets uh, their view of what they deserve versus what the world gives them comes into conflict, there can be very nasty, nasty consequences. And, you know, that could be an angle to be played up with, with Darren Cross, if we wanted to make him real hateable, but that that isn't, you know, again, we just, we don't get to spend much time with the guy or get to know much about his motivation or his relationship with Hank or, you know, anything that might make him more, more interesting. So how would we grade this guy? B minus. I'm giving him a solid C because um, once again, I I don't think it's a huge problem for Ant-Man to have a antagonist that's not super exciting, but 
if he was better, then it would all be better. Um, but he's not. But at the same time, it's not like a gaping flaw in the narrative. So I'm not going to give him a D just because he doesn't drag the film down. But um, he's still getting a C for for not really contributing anything. So he could be uh, an evil ficus in a shrink costume? Yes, we have ourselves a certified evil ficus here. Okay, cool. <laughs> okay, I'm down with that. Uh, all right, that's the end of phase two then. On to, on to Captain America Civil War, a.k.a. Avengers 2.5. You know the joke. Um, yeah, we've got... Here we have Zemo, a.k.a. forgettable villain number three. <laughs> so... I mean, you know, I think this is interesting, actually, that we, we are calling him forgettable because, like, he's su- like he's such a behind-the-scenes guy, but, like, it's very intentional, like, on, like in on his part, you know, like, him as a character. Like, he's, o- he's just, like a, like, a guy who, like, if I remember correctly, just spends hours and hours poring over, like, the Hydra Shield info dump that Natasha does in Captain America Winter Soldier. Um, to try to find more info, particularly about the Winter Soldier program and the protocol. And, you know, comes up with this very elaborate, like, scheme to to pit Iron Man and Captain America against each other. Or, you know, in, on, a very, on a very personal level. And I think that is somewhat interesting, but, like, it's, it's, it's kind of a convoluted scheme. Um... Like how 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 do we want to pick him apart as like a villain? Um, I think that that's a good point you make about sort of his behind the scenes blended with the background nature because the thing is I I have a lot of frustrations with Civil War I think because I was very very hyped up for it and when I initially watched it I liked it a lot but the more I thought about it the worse it got and that's that's never a good sign with a movie you know. Um, I'm not saying that every movie has to be, you know, super, super rewatchable, but for me, Civil War is the one that fails the most on the rewatch. And I think part of it has to do with the fact that, like you said, it's Avengers 2.0. There's too much stuff going on. Um, the Accords, which presumably are the big source of the conflict, are just kind of a smoke screen and they get dropped um, like halfway through the film and they're not really a big deal ever again. You know, you'd think they could actually, they, that would be something that would change the MCU, but it doesn't seem to. Um, and so, yeah, I have a lot of floating frustrations with civil war, but I think part of it is I, I sort of wish that there wasn't even a villain. I kind of wish that it was really just about Steve and Tony arguing about this issue and about their own personal conflict coming to a head and that we didn't have to have a villain pulling the strings but we do have a villain pulling the strings and i think that that's part of what makes him feel kind of unnecessary is that you know these are two guys who have never gotten along and also this is a team that has always had interpersonal dynamic issues so you know lighting a match on this this is not like a a box of like soggy wet logs that would be hard to burn this is like if you want to light a match and throw it into the avengers they are some very 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 dry kindling so they are going to turn into a big bonfire um so yeah we just don't really need zemo and i think that that to me is one of the biggest issues with him as a character also as you said his plan like i i like the idea that he is someone who is like a special ops guy who is kind of sneaky and behind the scenes and has this idea of like okay if i want to get these guys 
to all start fighting each other. Or if I want to break up this team, I need to find a fault line and jam something into it. Um, and he figures out that the Winter Soldier is going to be that. Um, so I, I like that idea in theory, but yeah, his plan is just a little too convoluted um, for, in my opinion, to make a lot of sense. Um, and then also... You know, I do I do kind of like the idea that he was just sort of a normal, I mean, a normal guy with government training, but still kind of a normal guy whose family was destroyed as collateral damage and has now come back to kind of wreck havoc. I think that does um, underline this idea of collateral damage and how, you know, destructive it is to the people who are not superheroes to witness these superhero battles. Um, but again, like the character himself uh, is just not very interesting. Like there's, there's, there's hints of stuff there. There's stuff that could be developed. There's stuff that could really work and could make him more interesting. Um, but I just, I don't think he really fulfills any of that potential. So that's my pick. I'm curious on what that potential is for you. Um, I just like the idea of a villain with no powers going up against a group of superheroes and actually being able to really get to them um, just because they're smart and they're good at uh, espionage, personally. I-, I like that concept of a normal person just being able to kind of wreak havoc with um, a group of super people. Uh, just by virtue of, again, being crafty and figuring out what the issues are with their interpersonal dynamics. And um, yeah, I I just think that that could have been an interesting, again, it didn't necessarily need to be the story of Civil War, but that could potentially be a really interesting story for me. But No, no, I see your point, you know? And not that I think about it, because my initial thought about um, Zemo is that he's just a big wet turd. You know, I just, I don't care for him at all. I just (laughs) want to punch him in the throat. But that was literally all I had to say. But now that you mention it, Caroline, his concept is really good. The only problem is that right concept, wrong movie. Because I would have liked to see Captain America and Iron Man go head to head on the Accords like how they did in the comics. It was such an interesting arc. I enjoyed it. It broke my heart, but I still loved it, you know? And the fact that, like, it was all spearheaded by Zemo in the MCU-verse, and yeah, it's disappointing when you think about it. It really is kind of takes the fun out of it, almost, if you're a masochist or whatever. But yeah, just maybe if he was used in another movie or another scenario in the MCU, I think he would have worked a lot better. But I think that's what it was. That's the problem. Right concept, excellent concept, wrong movie. Yeah, and that's a good point you make about Civil War arc in the comics, how in the comics it's very... And the thing is, like, I have a lot of issues with those comics. I think everybody's characterization is kind of out of whack. Um, and But I do like the fact that, you know, the Accords are the core of that conflict, and it is about two people with very different viewpoints going at it. Um, because of those viewpoints. And also, you know, in the comics, like Steve and Tony actually like each other. They're actually friends. So when they are ripped apart and then when Steve later dies, 
like that is actually has emotional weight. Whereas for me, you know, their friendship falling apart in civil war doesn't, I don't care because they never really seemed to like each other to begin with. It was just like, and I mean, you know, that made it believable. I'm like, yeah, of course these guys are going to fight. That's all they do. Um, but <laughs> yeah. you know, in the civil war comic, I remember being like, Oh wow. I actually do feel something about this because these two people seem to really, I think there's like one, one shot where they just like go to the you know the former avengers mansion where they all used to live together and then they just end up getting into a fight like just the two of them and it feels really like a, a horrible like like a bad breakup or like a friendship that ended real badly or you know something more emotional so so yeah i'm i'm, I'm not a huge fan of the comic but i'm with jen on um the the idea that there is a lot more potential in civil war that could have been mined i'm curious though going back to zemo like you know because he's gonna play a role in falcon and the winter soldier you know you know he's gonna play a bigger role in that show like what what will that role be exactly well i think it's hard to say at this point um partially because i think they're he's already very different from the character in the comics. So I don't think we can really go off of that. Um, in the comics, uh, Baron Zemo is a really goofy looking guy with a purple sock on his face. Who's apparently like a Nazi nobleman who Steve killed during world war two. And then his like son or grandson, you know, becomes Baron Zemo and wants revenge on Steve and is also a Nazi. Um, and, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, like Google um Google images of Baron Zemo because he looks so so goofy in the comics. Um but uh it'll it'll be interesting to see what that looks like in this show because again, they made that character very different. He has a very different backstory and motivation. He is still somewhat driven by revenge, but again, when we you know, we talk about motivations, at least in this case, you know, the original Zemo is one of those people who wants revenge, but it's like Hey, dude, your dad was a Nazi. Like, I don't feel much sympathy for you wanting revenge. Um, whereas, you know, in, in the movie, the thing about Zemo that does give him some kind of emotional core is that his family were innocent civilians who were killed um, because of Ultron. And I mean, they try and frame it as like, well, because the Avengers were fighting Ultron. But, you know, that's kind of like saying, like, you accidentally got my opinion you're like you accidentally got killed by the firefighters trying to put the fire out like ultron started it and the avengers started ultron by which i mean tony and bruce so you know it does come back to them in my opinion um but he, thank the, you for saying tony and bruce by the way yeah thank you yes people tend to forget that oh no i bruce deserves some of the blame i'm i'm not not gonna let bruce get out of this um <laughs> I don't care if he takes a jet out of the world and goes to another planet. He still doesn't totally get to get out of creating Ultron. Yeah, not getting away that easily, Bruce. Yeah. We love you, but come on now. But, but I mean, I also, you know, people do give Tony more of the blame because it was Tony's idea and he, you know, pushed Bruce into it. Bruce should have said no, but... Um, you know, it, it was Tony's idea. Um, so anyway, but the thing about Zemo in the in the movies is that he has a family. He lost his family, and they were they were civilians. You know, they were innocent bystanders. Um, so I think his desire for revenge is more understandable um, in that case. And also his argument about whether or not heroes are a destructive force, I think, has some weight. You know, 
Um, my personal opinion is that in the MCU, what we've been shown is that most heroes are first responders who are just not able to save everyone. Um, but some of them create the villains, uh, and, and that's a problem. So, so how would you gals rate Zemo overall, knowing what we know? That's kind of tough. I mean, I guess cause he doesn't technically he's important to like the story as it is in Captain America Civil War, but like the story in and of itself, there are problems with it. <laughs> you yeah. know, so I'm trying to think of the whole like villain role in the story kind of criteria, and I'm not really sure how to pin that. Yeah, that's a good point that it's not really Zemo's fault that he's in the wrong movie, you know. <laughs> but he, yeah, he does become a problem with that movie. Yeah, he's just one of many problems with that movie, in my personal opinion. But hey, maybe like since he is in the wrong movie, maybe. Like, just putting him in Falcon and Winter Soldier will make him more of a th uh, force to be reckoned with. Yeah, that's a good point. So, for me, maybe I'm just going to leave off grading him right now because we know his story isn't over yet. Yeah. That's but, fair. Yeah, you know what? Same here. I was going to give him a solid C, but no, nah, reserve judgment. I, I, I take it back. Yeah. I really hope Falcon and Winter Soldier is good, you guys. Let's let's not talk about that now. It's gonna make me anxious. I know. Um, yeah. Um, all right. So so we're done with with Zemo. Then let's move on to Doctor Strange. Um, <laughs> Wait, were we gonna talk about Crossbones? Oh shoot! I totally forgot. <laughs> is that how forgettable he is? Or... <laughs> oh no! <laughs> we did. Well, he was only there for like what twenty minutes max. Yeah, he, the thing is, I don't think he's a problem, you know, he is, he's the muscle, like, that's his job, that was his job in Winter Soldier, that's his job in this, like, he's a big, tough, bad guy, he causes some problems, and then, you know, Wanda gets him all blowed up, so we don't have to deal with him anymore. Um, well, he blows himself up, she just tries to move him out of the way, but then things go wrong, so he's, like, an important plot point, so, yeah. yeah. You're right. He blew him. He blew himself up. Wanda just made sure that he didn't take as many people with him as he wanted to. She saved Cap. Yep, and ev everyone was on the ground, you know. So we don't. We don't know. Um, yeah, she was in a situation where she didn't have much time to react, and she did everything she could, in my opinion. So. Yeah, definitely. And Crossbones, shame on you. Shame on you. Just because uh, Captain America is better looking than you and is the better soldier doesn't mean you have to go blow yourself up. Come on now. <laughs> oh, so have we found Crossbones' motivation that he's just jealous of Steve? That's my theory. Well, who wouldn't <laughs> be? You know, who wouldn't be? Yeah, that that's hard. It's It's hard not to be jealous of Steve. You know, he's got the looks and the muscles and the sex pheromones. <laughs> You always get me with those sex pheromones. All right. Now are we done with Captain America Civil War? <laughs> I think, no, I'm never going to be done with Captain America Civil War. But um, yes, you're, no, you actually healthier version. I should be done with Captain America Civil War. Let's put that behind us. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. All right. So Dr. Strange. Um, so what's funny about this is that uh, we could, it's Kaecilius, right? Played by right. Max Nicholson. And, like, I had to look up how to pronounce his name because Caroline were it, Caroline and I had, a, like, a disagreement about, like, wait, 
How, how are you pronouncing it, Caroline? I was pronouncing it Caecilius because that's how, to be fair to me, it wasn't just because like, that's what I remember from Latin class. Um, fun fact, uh, there was a man in Pompeii named Caecilius. He had a big house and a lot of it survived. So we actually know a decent amount about him and his family. Um, and he became the basis for a series of Latin textbooks. Um so that's where I, that's kind of what was in my head. But at the same time, I had heard people call him Caecilius before, like YouTubers and um, podcasters and so forth. So uh, I think we, um, yeah, I, I, I had the wrong, but this is a nice way of me, me trying to not admit that I was wrong and I was wrong. <laughs> I only, yeah, I just looked it up for like a video with Mad, like an interview with Mads Mikkelsen at like a Comic Con or something and. Actually, I think he says it Cassilius. I'm still pronouncing it wrong. I think he says Cassilius. I've already forgotten. Mm-hmm. We're probably going to mess it up for the rest of the podcast. It's fine. Yeah, anyway, it's so a soft C. Um, my yeah. understanding is that it's, yeah, I was wrong. I thought it was a hard C. It's a soft C, so it's Cassilius. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's him, and then there's also D- uh, Dormammu, who's voiced by Benedict Cumberbatch. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. I. It- I honestly expect Benedict Cumberbatch to voice every villain from now on. Just, yes, please, thank you. Yeah, it's the perfect place for him to be a motion capture villain voice. You know, he's got the voice for it. He doesn't have to do an American accent. I don't have to look at him. All good stuff. (laughs) Wow. I, I kid. I, I I've um, come to. I've made peace with Benedict. He's no longer on my my list because um, I actually like him okay as Doctor Strange, even if his accent drives me nuts. Um, but I do like him as Dormammu. I think he's he's good at voicing CGI villains. Agreed. Uh, and as for Caecilius, Caecilius, Kai what? Mads Mikkelsen. Honestly, dude, I barely remember him. I just remember he did bad things and endangered people and is trying to, and is basically Dormammu's bitch or whatever, but <laughs> like. Yeah, I, I was trying to find a good way of describing it, but you hit it on the nail on the head, Jen. He's Dormammu's bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, I don't have much to say about him, partially because it's been a while since I've seen Doctor Strange and two, I would not have remembered this guy's name. Had I not looked it up, yeah, which is the case for a lot of these villains. But in this case, I really was like, man, I can't even name the actor. Oh, my gosh. You know, I can because I'm a big Mads Mikkelsen fan. But, you know, that doesn't mean the character was good <laughs> just because I could actually <laughs> remember the actor. Um, yeah, Caecilius Ky- is another one of those, I think, forgettable kind of one note villains. Um he he claims that the reason he like wants to bring Dormammu is into the world has something to do with like his family being killed. So we got another like dead family origin, but it's like, you know, with Zemo, at least it tied into the conflict. With this, it doesn't. Like, I really don't think I that was my understanding of his motivation, but I don't think it has anything to do with Dormammu or opening up like a Dormammu dimension or um, you know, killing Doctor Strange or whatever it is he's doing. Uh, so, so yeah, he, even though I, I like Doctor Strange as a movie, I haven't seen it in a while, but I remember other parts, you know, I remember Doctor Strange's cape and that wasn't a character. That wasn't even a character. That was just a cape. 
The cape is legendary. Like, honestly, the cape needs to be his own hero with his own spin-off series. The whole shebang. Yeah, I mean, that would really work. They could do a really cute little, like, animated series of shorts with just the cape having adventures. I would watch that. And probably buy it. Marvel, if you're listening to this, you're welcome for the idea. Yeah, if, if you can get past us dunking on a lot of your villains, um, we do have some good suggestions. <laughs> I mean, heck, we even have suggestions about how to make your villains better. So, you know, take some notes. All right, yeah, Kevin Feige is taking notes as we speak. Anyway. <laughs> um, okay, so, I mean... How would we say, though, how would we grade them as, as the villains, um, Dormammu and Caecilius? Solid C for both. Yeah, I I mean, I think Dormammu does work in the context of the story, but this is another one of those ones where I almost feel like there doesn't need to be a big bad in the end, because I think, like, a lot of what I find compelling about Doctor Strange is that Doctor Strange is often his own worst enemy and has to figure out how to, you know, not be that and how he, you know, who he is now and how he fits in the world. And honestly, I think you could have told that story without there being a villain, like, you know, or without it being just a straight up linear story, like feel free to get weird and trippy with it. And it does and, and go off in different directions, you know, um, but I do think, like, it makes sense for a sorcerer to be guarding the world from a big mystical, you know, cloud of, of space, whatever, um, who he kind of annoys into submission. Um, but, but yeah, Dormammu is, I mean, I guess you need to give Strange a reason to sacrifice himself or to be willing to, to die multiple times. Because, you know, the point of Doctor Strange is he starts out thinking everything is about him and then comes to the realization that... Um, he is part of a larger picture, a larger story, and that it isn't about him. And that's important. And you need to have a moment where it's like, that's been realized. But I don't know if we really need Dormammu to do that. So yeah, I'm, I'm giving them both a C or giving them collectively a C. Yeah, I mean, I think Dormammu is memorable because of the whole time stone thing and him killing him over and over again. I just think that's like, that's funny and memorable in and of itself, um, and I think an important character moment. So I, I think Dormama functions well in terms of that. Um, and, like, Caecilius, you know, he's got the creepy eye thing. <laughs> you know, I, that's kind of memorable. Um, I don't know. I mean, I probably agree with a C, too, but, like, maybe, maybe you, you could convince me maybe of a C plus just for having at least distinct looks. I don't know. Yeah. Okay, let's bump it up to a C plus because like we I don't really dislike them. Um, and they don't really. I think the story could have been more interesting without them, but you know they they work just fine within the story they're telling. So agreed. Uh, okay. Um, great. Then let's let's move on to Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Oh my gosh. Jen is ready. I am ready. This is the first villain in Phase 3 that I'm going to remember the rest of my life. And not just because we got Kurt Russell, which, you know, kudos. Thank you, MCU. Thank you. But, oh my gosh, Ego? You suck. You suck so hard. I, oh my gosh. This guy... Worst father, 
terrible villain, and I mean like terrible, not in a, oh my gosh, this guy sucks, we need to fix him, but no, like a, this guy needs to be punched in the throat kind of villain. You know, oh my gosh, the dude makes me go into rage every time I watch the movie, which means, Marvel, you did your job. Congratulations. Yeah, and that's a good point that, like, one of the things about a villain can, you know, there's some villains that you love, some villains that you hate, some villains you love to hate, but making a really hateable, punchable villain who you just want to see go down can be difficult, in my opinion, and especially if you're in, like, a PG-13 setting, um, because, you know... A lot of the like villains that people absolutely loathe come from kind of more R-rated settings where they're able to do just like heinously horrible things to people um, that we see on screen. And so we're just like, oh my God, someone needs to kill this guy. Like he keeps torturing puppies. Um, but, you know, the MCU kind of isn't able to do that uh, or at least not able to show it. And with Ego, um, you know, he just like, he is very hateable. He is so, I mean, his name is literally Ego. He is so phenomenally selfish um, and so willing to hurt and kill people who are, he claims to care about or who are his relatives in order to achieve his goals of just like, I don't really even know what he wants to do. Um, but just like, yeah. yeah it's like make the whole universe Ego. Like literally yeah. it's just like to take like he was like disappointed by life, <laughs> like by meeting like, you know, other beings. And he's like, I'm just going to eat up everything. Like, honestly, if he had succeeded, I don't really see how you would have been satisfied with that either. Honestly, yeah, I just the dude was a narcissistic narcissist up like to the 11th power. But I really do wonder if he loves himself that much that he actually would have been satisfied if he would have made the world in you know, all ego or whatever. I don't think so. I think he would have been bored, but I don't know. Yeah, that that's a question that I hadn't thought about. But yeah, he really is kind of like an old, you know, like a, a, a classic god from like the Greek pantheon or something where it's like, I don't care about the suffering of all these mortals. And I mean, he, he reminds me of Zeus, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, he oh, yeah, goes especially around. with all the children around. <laughs> yeah, he goes around fathering children with all these women who he either kills or just kind of lets die, and he kills the kids sometimes or almost at the time um, until he gets what he wants. And yeah, he's really like the the sort of horrifying spectacle of a guy with the power of a god, but absolutely no compassion or humanity for anyone else. Um, yeah, he he's he's good at being very very hateable and. Uh, Kurt Russell is, I think, a lot of... I, I like him because, you know, he's he's one of those actors who's known for playing nice guys. And at first, when we meet him, it's like, oh, man, maybe he's kind of a cool guy. I mean, we know it's not the case because, like, okay, whenever you have a found family and a member of the biological family comes back and is like, let's be a family again, you know found family's going to win in these stories. You know the member of the biological family turns out to be evil so that the team doesn't get split up. Um, so like we knew he was the bad guy kind of right off the bat, but I think he does kind of seem like he might not be for a little bit. Um, but yeah, just like the blase nature of his evil, like how little he even cares really about stuff. And again, again, like saying like, oh yeah, I loved her, but you know, I had to give her brain cancer because she was distracting me. Um, 
know, that's, I mean, that kind of, and the way he's willing to, what he's willing to do to his kids, it's like, I guess you can kind of tie that back to, you know, people who do kill their families, who oftentimes see their families as an extension of themselves. Um, so it's like, it's okay to do this, or they see it as an extension of their partner or something like that. Or people who kill their spouses will sometimes say like, yeah, you know, I love them, but they piss me off or, you know, I had to, or, you know, stuff like that. So like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. I guess that's the scary thing about ego is like, if you, you strip down all the fantasy elements, he, he is really just one of those people who like, he just, who just murders their family. Um, you know, which unfortunately we do have in real life. Um, Mm so, so yeah, he's, he's a nasty piece of work. Seriously. Like, First and foremost, the fact that he killed uh, Peter's mom, Meredith, that hurt as it is. Because we remember seeing this woman, you know, in the first movie dying and Peter carries around the Walkman and everything, which Ego destroys like a douche. Yeah. Won't let that go. But then I almost forgot that he killed all his kids. I mean, when Gamora and Nebula stumble upon that graveyard of just thousands of bones i'm just like dude what the hell's your problem my gosh this guy is like a villain in every worst possible way harms threatens and kills children is willing to kill his own family and people he quote-unquote loves enslaved mantis into thinking that like she was meant to be like a servant and that's all she's good for and believes he's right and then, of course, you know, the whole kick the dog thing with breaking Peter's Walkman. This guy's the worst. Yeah, he he is. And I mean, also, you know, something I just thought of when you were talking about, you know, we see Meredith dying is like he has the power of a god. Like he could kill her in any way he wanted. Like if he thought he had to kill her, like he could have just snapped his fingers and she would have like, I don't know, died really quickly or something. But no, he gives her a, a a way of dying that is long and painful. And, you know, she has to, her family had to watch her die like that too. I am know. in shock. Oh, I never man. even thought of that. And that you now, the scene, oh my gosh. scene is like a billion times worse now. Oh my gosh. Seriously, he could have just, like, shot her with a god arrow or something, and then boom, she dies. But no, no, he's just like, yeah, I'm going to give her a brain tumor, you know, bring it out. Stretch out the torture. Because reasons. Whoa, I hate him so much more now. Thanks, Caroline. <laughs> uh, um, I wasn't trying. It was just a- it was just something that I really thought of right it's now. It's a good thing. Like, he's a hateable villain. We've already established that. Yeah, but there, there obviously is- it's awful that he did that. But I'm just saying, like, there's a layer that I didn't think of, and you're like, you've opened my eyes. I'm like, oh my gosh. Yeah, just- I, I think there's something really uniquely insidious about somebody who has the power of a god who could give someone they claim to care about any kind of death. Like he could have given her a totally peaceful, painless, quick death. But he doesn't. He gives her a long, slow, drawn-out, excruciating death. He literally could have given her a heart attack. Yeah. And then be done with it. An aneurysm, something. (sighs) Oh, that's awful. Okay, I... (laughs) I really don't have any more to add to that, honestly. I mean, I think he is, like... I would say an A villain, A plus villain, because A plus, A plus, the dude's the worst. Yeah. Um, 
I guess for me, like, in terms of what he represents and the way he acts, he is so uniquely sort of horrible and nasty. I mean, not uniquely in the MCU. We do see some other villains who are pretty awful. Um, but yeah, there's something, I mean, just the scale of his destruction and just the pettiness and the pointlessness of it does make him extremely hateable. I will say, however, that I personally, you know, looking back on the story of Guardians 2, I don't know exactly how I'd change it or make it different, but something about the, the, the arc of it and the actual story, I don't find that satisfying. I think him as a character is a really great, hateable villain, but I just don't connect with the story. So I don't know how well he serves the story. Um, and Is also, it because you don't care about his whole thing with Peter? I think that that is part of it, yeah, is because I think, like, even though, as I said, Kurt Russell does a good job of playing him as someone who's potentially likable, and you can see, you know, especially in, like, that early scene where you see him hanging out with Meredith, and, like, you can see, you know, before you know who he is or anything, you're like, oh, yeah, he just seems like a cool 70s, 80s dude. Um... But, like, when we actually meet him in the story and know that he's Peter's dad, I think for me, I was just so like, oh, yeah, he's a he's going to be the villain. Um, and I think also part of it had to do with, like, one of the reasons I've stopped, list like, reading so much behind-the-scenes information about Marvel before the movies come out is because I realized I was kind of spoiling myself on some stuff. Um, uh, but anyway, I don't think, I, I don't think, even if I didn't know he was the villain, I would have just been like, oh, yeah, he's the villain because that's how these tropes work. Um, but also I didn't, yeah, really connect to him and his relationship to Peter. So I don't, as I said, I don't know. I don't have, um, a real clear idea of what I would fix about Guardians or I think I know why I don't connect to those movies as much as a lot of other people do. Um, but I think ego within the story is not, I don't know how good of a juxtaposition or a foil for the Guardians he really makes. I don't know how well he fits into their dynamic or Peter's. I mean, that's the thing about him being so hateable is like, I don't think he, I mean, I guess he makes Peter question his relationship to Yondu, which is like another can of worms. Um, but yeah, I don't feel like he actually brings a very interesting conflict to the table, even if as a character, he is a great hateable villain. So as I said, these are very open-ended criticisms and i know a lot of people love the guardians movies and think that like they're the best in the mcu but i um i don't get that personally so yeah that's kind of where i am i mean well how would you grade him then um i'm gonna give him a b to be honest or a b plus because it's like i like him as a villain but i don't know how well he serves the overall story all righty fair enough yeah and yeah no people I'm who I feel like don't really relate to the story. What about those gold people of Guardians of the Galaxy 2? Yeah, those gold people, like, you know, I think their design is interesting and some of the scenes with them are kind of fun. But I also do think that they definitely feel like sequel bait, you know? I mean, I know I gave Zemo a pass because I wasn't sure what was up with him in future installments, but I didn't feel like, you know, his character was just like, here I am. I am Zemo. I will be here later in other movies. Check in on me later. Um, <laughs> whereas, like the Sovereign and the Gold, the Gold People and Elizabeth Debicki, um, all feel like, yeah, we're we're not a huge deal in this movie, but you know, we're we're establishing us. We're gonna be there next movie. Like the only thing they were really good for was putting the Guardians in danger that Ego saves them from. 
Yeah. But but that's about it, really. Like, yeah, they gave him the job where Rocket steals those batteries and such, but that could have happened at any job, you know? Like, Ego could have literally saved them from any other job gone wrong. Yeah. You know? But I don't know. I, I didn't... Like, I know the potential for the Sovereign people are really good. You know, especially when you look at that... Um, that after credit scene, you know, with Adam or whatever. I know there's a lot of potential for that because I know a little, little bit about like that part in the Guardians comics. And I know that's like a great villain waiting to happen, but I don't know. I, I just, the gold people just irritated me at best. Okay. So now we've uh, figured out what the deal is with the gold people. Um, maybe let's move on to Spider-Man Homecoming. Oh, Spider-Man reboot. As an <laughs> avid Spider-Man fan, I've always loved the villains. Like, with a couple of minor exceptions, but Agent Toomes? Wow, this guy. <laughs> like, I don't actively hate him as much as I did Ego, but at the same time, I'm like, dude, chill, man. You know, I what I like about this guy as a villain is he's kind of a more... This is weird to say. Down to earth villain. Pun aside, yes, that is absolutely true, I think. Yeah, I like, you know, because like, I think of your point, Caroline, about, um, you know, uh, I want I, <laughs> I want to call it's Robert Redford. What's his name? Alexander Pierce. I, I wanted to call him Robert Pierce. And I'm like, that's not right. Um, <laughs> you talked about him being like sort of, you know, the, he usually plays the guy next door. And I was saying villain next door. It kind of feels like similar in that that shtick. You know, it's like, oh, mm-hmm. this is kind of more a regular guy. I think even more with Adrian Toomes because he's a suburban dad, you know. Yeah. And like he just has this business on the side. Oh, yeah. Casual, you know, but it's actually a really big deal. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're right. There, There is something so off-putting about the scenes where, and I mean, this is kind of what I'm talking about, about villains who, like, seem like they're nice, but, you know, turn out to be what they are. With Adrian Toomes, I don't think he even necessarily just seems. I think he does probably genuinely care about his daughter. And also, you know, when he's putting up that front with, um, with Peter, like, he knows who Peter is, but he's still kind of pretending to be, like, an average dad. But it's it's very unnerving um, because, again, he seems so perfectly normal, except for like some of the little things he says and does um, that that give away what it is that he's up to and what's going on in this dynamic. So, yeah, he's like he's so much more intimidating when he's just Michael Keaton than when he's got the costume on. Yeah. Oh, and man. like, yeah. And like, it's interesting because he. We were talking, I think, offline about it, but he becomes the thing that he hates, right? That in terms of like he this whole he gets started on selling this like illegal alien technology or selling off, you know, whatever the discards are of the Avengers and and all the Avenger battles, um, because he got bitter about Stark Industries kind of taking over, you know, after the Battle of New York and him losing out on a job, and then suddenly, he, but he becomes like this big weapons distributor, which was what like he was bitter about in the first place in terms of Stark Industries. Yeah, that's a, that's an int- a good point. And I feel like that's one of the things that's kind of interesting about 
his character is that like he is someone for whom his initial motivation is very understandable like in that opening scene when he talks about how like he's gone out on a limb for this job and he was you know promised this job and now stark industries is coming in and they're doing everything and you know they're uh, a huge multinational corporation he's like a small business um and there's definitely a real problem that is kind of being highlighted that is being highlighted with him and he doesn't have the the resources that stark industries does it would be hard to fight them i mean you know maybe he could file a lawsuit or something but again you know that's something that takes a lot of time and money and stark industries because it's a big company it's got that to burn and he doesn't uh however you know turning into an arms dealer uh now that's that's a bit of a problem because you know he is like you said he's turning into what he hated in a sense and he's also turning into someone who is flooding you know these other areas with dangerous technology and like um donald glover's character whose name i don't remember other than he's donald glover uh, Aaron Aaron Davis. oh yeah oh yeah you're right because okay now i know who he is because i of spider-verse and oh my gosh there are two Aaron davises i think um but uh, yeah, he's he talks about how like, hey, he, you know, his nephew lives in this neighborhood. Um, oh, I wonder who his nephew is. Um, <laughs> and he doesn't want this kind of stuff on the streets. And like, that's a good point that, you know, Adrian is someone who lives in a suburban house and he's got um, a nice, you know, nice setup, um, nice family, nice, you know, everything. But it's like he got that by making things harder for people who live in presumably like more impoverished neighborhoods um, and people who, you know, have been hurting worse than him because of uh, this kind of destruction and this kind of technology showing up on the market. So um, that's, I think what makes him, him a villain is, you know, not only his willingness to go after Peter, who is a kid, um, but it's also his lack of concern for the, the effects of this weaponry flooding the market, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, and like, I think this is kind of bringing up a, an older podcast of ours, um, when we did that spider Manathon and we were comparing the, the villains there, um, between the, the three iterations of Spider-Man, we were talking about how we really liked the whole because in all three like there's a villain who figures out spider-man's identity and adrian tombs like figures it out and you can actually see like the connecting the dots you know because like you know green goblin that guy like he, there's a drop of blood and suddenly it's like spider-man's peter parker and it doesn't make sense <laughs> <laughs> which if you want to hear my full rant about it go listen to our spider-man manathon episode but um, and for this though, he like he calculates it in his head. You see him connecting the dots of like you know like comments from his daughter, you know, and the way that Peter's acting super not chill, you know, <laughs> and, like reading oh like the gosh. the whole emotional tells there, you know. Then Seriously, he, like, yeah, yeah. That was one of the most tense scenes in the MCU. I remember, like like all rigid in my seat you know kind of throwing bridges some glances like oh man that moment though as you said bridget the moment where he connects the dots that is brilliant acting on michael keaton's part you see the gears turning and it just you know that oh gosh this just went from bad to worse oh my gosh yeah exactly yeah, yeah that is um that's a really great segment a great series of scenes 
right there. And I like your, I hadn't thought about that because again, I'm not super familiar with the other Spider-Man movies or with the Spider-Man comics. Um, but you know, knowing what I do know, I'm like, yeah, you're right. There's always a villain who figures out who Peter Parker is. Cause I think more so than maybe any other superhero, Peter Parker's secret identity is a huge issue for him. You know, like with Batman, if people find out his secret identity, it's like, yeah, so what? You know that I'm Bruce Wayne? All I have to do is protect Alfred, basically, and he's pretty good at taking care of himself. Also, yeah, you know I'm Bruce Wayne. Whatever, I guess my alibi is harder to defend. But, like, Peter, you know, is a kid, and he's got family, and there's a lot of people who could get hurt if people know that he's Spider-Man. And, you know, he usually has a girlfriend, too. So, um... Yeah, I think that that's that's something that's always there and it's always coming up. And it's interesting to see what happens when the villain is able to actually figure out what's going on just based off of, you know, evidence presented instead of like, you know, it's his blood for some reason or he like manages to see him (laughs) revealed or something like that. So so, yeah, I think and that also shows that Adrian Toomes is pretty smart. You know, he's pretty competent. He's pretty dangerous. Yeah, just honestly, he just not gets every box in villainry, you know. Yeah, I do feel sorry for him because that was a job that he and his crew were kind of counting on for their jobs. And yeah, Stark Industries, yeah, I want to clean up the conspiracy of aliens, yada, yada, yada. But man, at least compensate the people who are supposed to do the job. I get that. But you're right. That doesn't excuse the fact that d- this dude is making weapons like for people and people are getting hurt because of it. It's like uh, drug dealers, you know, it's not good for the neighborhood that's already in trouble. And yet this guy, all he's thinking is, no, nah, you know what? I got to provide for my family, my crew. Oh, one of my crew guys got vaporized. Eh, that's OK. Yeah, I was going to point out that moment. Just like so callous. Like, he doesn't intentionally do it but then when it happens he's like whatever yeah it's like i go back to the whole no remorse thing and what defines a villain like yeah he's doing what he has to you know at first that could be labeled as antagonist but Mm -hmm. then the fact that he does not care that his own crew member who's implied to be in the same boat as him maybe minus the family part and yet he does not care that this dude died that there are people who might are, are probably going to be wondering what happened to this guy, you know? And then not to mention, he did try to kill Peter, who is a child. Like, yeah. the dude has no qualms about endangering children, you know, through Peter and by sending weapons out into the streets. Okay, but I do have one question about him still. Like, he, we, we all know uh, that he knows Peter's identity, but he does not reveal that information when he's imprisoned and someone tries to get that out of him. I forget who. <laughs> it's I only know Nacho from Better Call Saul. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Oh my gosh, it is Nacho from Better Call Saul. Um... <laughs> How does he keep it a secret? Maybe he's planning to use it later? I don't know. Um, I mean, I think that that's... It's, it's hard to say at this point. I think that that's definitely a possibility that like he wants to leave this to him or he's going to, you know, go after Peter himself later or something. Or it is possible that he was actually affected by Peter saving him. You know? Um, it's uh, possible. Yeah. Life for a life and all that jazz. 
Yeah, that he still, you know, even though he is extremely callous, he still does have some level of a code, you know, that he's like, I'm not, if this kid saved me, I'm not going to rat on him, you know, and he may keep going with his villainous activities after he gets out of prison or in prison probably, but it may be that he's decided that like, okay, Peter Parker, I'm not going to go after him again, you know. Yeah, who knows, bit of a wild card. Maybe we'll find out in the third Spider-Man movie. Maybe we'll never know, but either way, I am very disconcerted that this dude is still alive. So how would we rate him as a villain? A minus. Um, I'm going to give him a solid A uh, because I just think he's a really, he's got, a, he ticks a lot of villain boxes. I like watching him. He's intimidating he genuinely brings a threat. Um, he's also, I, the thing is, I'm not really sure what, I think the film has a potentially interesting thesis that is contradicted by the rest of the MCU, that Peter does need to be a small, kind of a small time hero, that he does need to look out for his community and his neighborhood and leave some of the bigger cosmic stuff or some of the other stuff to the other heroes. Um, and also, you know, in I personally think that Toombs has a really good point when he talks about how, I mean, I think that this shows off both like his insights and also his hypocrisy when he says that he and Peter are both the little guys and people like Stark are just the big guys who kind of get to do whatever they want. You know, I think Adrian started out as a little guy who got kicked around and now he has become the big guy. But I don't think that changes the fact that Tony Stark is the big guy who is kind of, you know, I, I don't particularly like the way he treats Peter in that movie or in any of the movies, to be honest. Um, I think that, yeah, Peter really should look at his relationship with his mentor um, in terms of this power dynamic that they have. And I think that Toombs has a point, even if he's also a hypocrite, you know? Um, <laughs> So I think he's just a, and also again, like the, you bring up the question of like, why doesn't he rat Peter out at the end? That's a good question. And like any kind of interpretation makes him, I think a little more interesting. Like, is he planning something? Is it that he's had a change of heart? Is it just that he has a code and he's not going to, you know, rat on Peter because Peter saved him? Whatever interpretation, it just makes him a little more interesting. So I give him a very solid A. I think he's one of my all time, one of my favorite MCU villains. Whoa. That's big. Coming from Caroline, folks. Yeah, Yeah. we got one. And I think it's especially nice, too, because, again, as we mentioned, this is like the third iteration of Spider-Man, so you have to make it fresh. And I think he helped in that. Yeah, and that's a good question. Um, Jen, I was curious to know more when you talk about the villains in the comics and how, like, you always really like Spider-Man villains. What do you think set Spider-Man villains apart from maybe another comic rogues gallery or villains, super villains in general. And like, how do you think, um, I mean, maybe you guys, you know, I'm sure you guys talked about this more in your, your Spider-Man podcast and everything, but like just in terms of talking about Adrian Toomes, how well do you think he kind of stacks up as a Spider-Man villain and kind of in the larger context of Spider-Man villains? So yeah, that's a very good question. And a part of it is that like, I'm a little biased. I grew up on Spider-Man, not just like the Tobey Maguire version, but the 1990s animated series. Mm -hmm. What I liked about each of Spider-Man's villains, like despite the goofy costumes and the dorky, like villain names or whatever, they actually did pose a real threat to the neighborhood. Like, 
most of the villains are just small time dudes who want to rob the bank or cause anarchy because their business rival like screwed them over you got the kingpin who's kind of like the crime boss of uh, new york and everything so they are villains that are perfect for spider-man the friendly neighborhood spider-man these are neighborhood villains these aren't people who want to rule the world or blow it up and then dance on the ashes no nah, these are these are just dudes who want to make a quick buck who want to get like small time revenge you know what have you these are like non-friendly neighborhood villains and they are perfect especially since a lot of these villains also connect to peter parker somehow you've got his best friend who becomes a villain his best friend's father who's a villain his uh, mentor is a villain, colleagues a villain, his rival's a villain. Like, there are just so many villains that are personally connected to Peter. It's insane. So there's a lot of things that I like about them, but I think what I like best is that they are fitting for the story that Spider-Man tells. I think they got that well with uh, Adrian Toomes as Vulture. Like, you're, it's you guys are right he is a villain who's more for the neighborhood and yet he does have the connection to peter which yeah it, it kind of raises the stakes a little bit as it should you know that's usually the case in the spider-man comics and that's like, also it is a twist in the movie like he's this is dad you know at least yeah. watch it for the first time yeah honestly i thought that was a twist too because like it like makes you rethink your personal biases about interracial couples and such but also because, like, wow, you never hear anything about him. Like, you know he's talking about his family, but Liz, of course, doesn't really talk about her dad, you know? And why should she? She's a teenager. She's got other things to think about or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's I like that point that, like, Liz is like, okay, whatever, dad. And Adrian's like, I gotta talk about my family. Look, here's my daughter's picture. <laughs> Yeah, definitely like Vulture as a villain. And Michael Keaton, kudos, man. Could not have picked a better person for to portray Adrian Toomes. Yeah, that's um that's a, like a reoccurring theme I've noticed in this podcast as well. Is like we joke about like not being able to figure out who anybody is because of the actors playing them, but there are a lot of really, really good actors who are playing these characters, and I think, you know, with the right casting, I mean some of them can't quite get above the material um but some of them i think especially if they were given something to work with really bring a unique uh energy and perspective and can really take you know a good villain into a great villain so yeah shout out to to michael keaton for for this performance all right uh are we ready to move on to thor ragnarok then absolutely yeah, let's do it let's ragnarok and roll Ha. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, would have, I would have said it too. <laughs> I recognize it both of you. You can't see it. But um Okay, so I really, really love the villain of Thor Ragnarok. I mean, Hella, like first of all, let's I mean just talk about the antlers, the whole look, you know? Um wow. Like, she's terrifying to look at but also looks really awesome <laughs> like <laughs> it's like such like that in itself is like such a distinct look you know 
and it's and it's and it's like in it ties in you know obviously with like the black color scheme the death and the war you know but also there's like a sharpness to to like the antlers and to even her own you know facial features and everything you know because of like her power is literally you know shooting out weapons from her hands you know yeah, and that's a good point in terms of like design. You know, we've been kind of talking, I mean, we were talking a lot about, you know, female characters and the way they look and their fashion and their design and how like, you know, it doesn't always serve these characters well or how you've got a lot of villains that are like have these very goofy gimmicks. But Hela is someone where her design really enhances her presence. You know, she looks scary. She looks intimidating. and But she also does look you know, a little over the top, a little uh, wild. And she doesn't look like someone who belongs in a, you know, grounded down to earth kind of story. She looks like she belongs in a space opera, which is what she's in. Yeah, there we go. That's perfect comparison because everything about her is terrifying and dramatic, but yeah, she's a dramatic character. She is the sister of Thor and Loki's secret daughter of Odin, which A plus parenting yet again oh yes ah <laughs> yes welcome back to the odin and is he a villain is he the big bad of the whole four series <laughs> i think yes um discussion we started way back in uh the first thor movie so yeah once again odin is a huge part of the conflict in this movie, <laughs> even though he's dead for most of it <laughs> yeah this guy he, just yeah What's his deal, really? Like, he's... As, yeah. Oh, you. Sorry. Go ahead. What is it? You, you keep asking. What's his deal? No, seriously. What is his deal? Like, he's this power-hungry mogul who wants to conquer everyone because I like power. Yada yada. Whatever. And manages to birth a daughter that's more than happy to help him with that because maybe she was raised that way. Maybe that's just how she is. Don't know. Don't care. We conquer, we kill, yada yada. And then out of the blue, Odin's just like, eh, I'm done. Yeah, that's that is a really good point. You know, we asked the question like, what, you know, about these kids? It's like, what exactly is the reason they're born? How are they created? Like, is it just, you know, kind of the way normal humans are created? Or is it like Odin does something specific to be like, all right, I want this one to be the goddess of death, and I want this one to be the god of thunder. And I don't know, yeah, they like whip up a potion or do a spell or something so that they can get kids like that, or is this just how god genetics work? I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, Odin is... Well, again, to me with Odin, I just feel like he is someone from a, another time period. You know, if you look at, like quote-unquote great men great kings in history usually they did just conquer and take stuff and usually their families were messed up and they didn't treat their kids very well um so yeah i think odin is just like a viking warlord who is in a medium where people are like hey hey maybe you shouldn't do that hey or they are like yes father you are very wise i'm like no he's not he doesn't know what he's talking about his fault um but again that's a good question you bring up is like what made him change and also 
I don't think he really has changed. I think he's changed on the surface, but he doesn't seem to understand what it was that motivated him to be like that. Or, you know, he pretends that he's different. Um, like, you know, my, my whole headcanon that like, you know, he didn't adopt Loki. He took him as a hostage, but he tells everyone he adopted Loki. Um, so yeah, I just, I think Odin is still kind of that same warlord guy and he's maybe tried to clean up his act. Um, also, Freya, where does she fit into all of this? Like, was she a decent parent to Hela? Or has she just, like, spent her whole life stepping back and, like, letting Odin do whatever dumb stuff and bad parenting and warlording he wants to do? Uh, that's that's a question that I, I ask now. What does she do? You know, is she just completely fine with Odin raising their daughter as this killing machine? Heck, is that even her kid? I mean, at best, she is complicit in the yeah. warmongering and the genocide and the colonization. I mean, that's, like, what it is. I mean, that's what I, like, really appreciated about Taika Waititi's direction and, like, the way he – where he led the story. You know, I can't forget that quote from Hela uh, where she says, you know, where do you think all this gold came from? You know, that's, like – that's, like, you know, colonialism to a T. And like, you know, and taking over, you know, the indigenous peoples and their lands and their resources and taking it for yourself and then changing the history books to make it seem like you're this benevolent, you know, um, this benevolent being, this benevolent king, this white savior, what, however you want to put it. Like, that's like, mm -hmm. that's like where I see that connection. And it's so insidious, too. I mean, I remember that scene, too, where she like dismantles like the murals. Like, do you remember what these murals looked like? It was like, you know, the the family of Asgard, like Freya and Odin and Thor, and they have like the halos around. You think of like the medieval, um, medieval European paintings, you know, mm -hmm. and then it's dismantled and it reveals like the, you know, just murals of red and blood and death, you know, in its place. And she's like, "This is your real history." Yeah, yeah, that. Thank you so much for, for putting that really wonderfully and succinctly. Like that I think is the true, um, yeah, the true kind of more themes of, uh, those are the true themes I think of Thor Ragnarok. Um, and it weaves them into kind of this story we've already had um, and this family we've already sort of come to. And I think it's also, you know, a good point that like we've already come to care about some of these characters. Like, you know, we think that we like Thor, but Thor also has to address his place in this and his, um, the fact that he's benefited from this. Like, again, where does he think all, all the gold came from? And he's been told this fake history. And like, what is it that he has to do next about that? Um, but also, yeah, you have Hela, who's kind of, you know, she, on the one hand, she's not a good person, but she's also like, she is being honest about this. She is saying like, I am who I am. I'm the goddess of death. I am the bringer of destruction. And Odin, you know, that's the really insidious thing about Odin is he's constantly trying to recast himself as, um, like you said, as a benevolent savior character and his own story and in the stories of these other places and of Asgard and, he is not um and he never has been and it doesn't matter if he changed his mind like that's kind of that's not worth much if he's not going to be honest and he's not going to make any kind of you know reparations or any kind of recompense or any kind of um 
atonement for the things he's done. He literally just wants to lock it up in the basement and whitewash it over. Yeah, and that's something you got to appreciate about Hela. Like, yeah, she's the goddess of death and she gouged out Thor's eye and destroyed Mjolnir and all this other horrible stuff. But at least she's straight about it. She knows who she is and she's not going to pretend that she's justified. No, no, this is what she wants to do. She wants to kill. She wants to destroy Asgard and take it over for herself, whatever. She's straight about it. No BSing. No, oh, I did what I had to or whatever, you know. Gotta give it to her. Yeah, I think for me, Hela is definitely very much a love to hate villain. You know, she like she looks amazing. She looks intimidating. She's very dangerous. She chews a bunch of scenery. She doesn't have any real nuance or complexity. She just is who she is. And um, yeah, she's she's a lot of fun to watch. And also, again, talking about like great performances, uh, Kate Blanchett is always, always fun to watch. You know, she there's nothing that woman can't do. Exactly. They picked well for that role, too. Like, Kate Blanchett, wow, I was legitimately terrified of her in Ragnarok. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think she's a lot scarier in Mrs. America, but that's a whole nother tangent. <laughs> um, but yeah, she's she's great in this. And um, yeah, I think Hela is a really solid, enjoyable but also, you know, a villain who brings up some really good points and some, you know, difficult themes to grapple with. But yeah, Hela is great. And then Odin, I think we can give Odin the title of the big bad of the Thor universe. Um, <laughs> in the Thor movies, Odin is the, vil- the, the like the greatest villain, in my opinion. He's the overarching villain. Yeah, no, I, I won't argue. Arguments. Yeah. And again, like, I don't, I think the issue is that it took a while to get to the point where like we were acknowledging it. And I think even Thor Ragnarok kind of tries to step it back a little bit in that it makes the case that like, well, you know, Odin was a crappy father to Hela and a crappy person and a crappy leader, but like, I guess he did care about Thor and Loki, Um, which, you know, I guess there is a point to be made about how like terrible people or people who do terrible things, you know, can still love their families and that doesn't negate the terrible things they do. Um, but you know, even then it's like Odin is so selective with his affections too. It's like, he likes, he seems to have cared about Freya. He says he cares about Loki. He says he cares about Thor, but like, he he really didn't do anything for any of them as like a, a husband or a father. Um, and he also locked up his first kid in the basement. Um, so yeah, but yeah, I, I am, I do think you've got to like, a point about how how Freya definitely is portrayed as like a nice person, but she's also very complicit in whatever it was he was doing. Um, and again, I do ask the question. I think that's a good question. Like, is Hella even Freya's kid? Like, is it just that like the first mom was someone he didn't particularly like, and so he got rid of the kid, and then he cried again for with mom too, and then he got the adopted kid he doesn't really like that much. Maybe. Um, yeah, but again, like that that kind of messed up like inter-family fighting is very much like, you know, you see it in Royal families all the time. It's like, you kind of wonder, I mean, you know, it's like, okay, you know, sometimes my brother and I don't get along, but I cannot imagine raising an army to fight him. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's, 
It's funny that you say that because I thought to myself, like, Hella's the firstborn, right? She's like the angry older sister. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Hella is me if my brother, like, got to inherit, I don't know, the family um, kingdom that we, we don't have. But, um, <laughs> you know, if, say my family were royalty and I got skipped over for my brother, I'd probably be a little bit pissed. But, you know, again, I can't ever see myself, like, actually raising an army and heck i mean even families that don't get along like i know you know there's plenty of families where the fights get really nasty but like did do you ever get into a fight over thanksgiving that gets so bad that you like hire a bunch of mercenaries and come and like attack the house um to take back your whatever from from your brother you know <laughs> definitely not but then again i'm pretty sure our parents aren't nearly as um unique as Thor's yeah you're you're right I mean definitely if, if you look at royalty and like the way they're raised um you you can see it's like okay this this is a recipe for a very unstable person with a god complex and no real relationship to their family and you're gonna give them absolute power um this there might be a problem with this system <laughs> so how how do we want to grade Hela then Solid A. Yeah, I'm gonna give Hella an A too. Yeah, all right. Agreed. A. Yeah. And Odin, this movie. Yeah. I think Odin gets a for me, Odin gets a B because as a villain, he actually could be a really amazing, like topical villain who is really horrible and like actually works, but also kind of has real world relevancy. But again, because the movies don't really get that he's a villain, he gets knocked down to a B because <laughs> Um, he, he needs to actually be presented that way for it to work. So, mm, so close. Yeah, I agree with that rating. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Anything else you want to say about Thor Ragnarok? Awesome movie. I want to watch it again. You're Do right. we want to touch on Loki at all? Um, yeah, Loki. So, I really struggle with Loki because, again, he feels like a very different character in each movie. And I think in this movie, I enjoy him more than I do in any of the others. I think that this characterization is on. It's just um, I feel like there's never really been any discussion of the fact that he, like, tried to enslave the human race. Um, and again, the question of, like, did he do that willingly or was he being brainwashed is never really addressed in the context of the movies so it's just like if he was doing that willingly like he caused the deaths of thousands of people presumably or at least hundreds of people in the battle of new york and also there's a huge been a huge amount of fallout from that um that we've seen throughout the mcu but you know loki doesn't really have to pay any kind of price for that but again if he didn't do that willingly it's like i think someone needs to come out and say that <laughs> <laughs> also but we we did talk about him in the first movie with the frost giants though he like was not de definitely not controlled by the mindstone at that point you're oh, right yeah. he, he tried to do a genocide in the first movie and again no one's really held him accountable for that or he's never really had to atone for that or admit to that or anything in the subsequent films so yeah, I mean, he's not really much of a, like, villain, villainous force in this movie, I guess. Antagonistic ally? Oh. I don't know. Yeah. 
All right. Well, I think that those are all my thoughts on on Thor Ragnarok and on this aspect of the MCU. Um, it feels like a good place for us to to pause our our podcast here. So, um, yeah. I mean, how are we feeling, you guys, about all these villains we've discussed today? Um, I think I think we've looking back on the different phases. I do think that the ones from phase one were not as bad as they've been made out to be, but I definitely think we've started to get into a bit of a groove here in phase. Um, I think we're in phase two. Are we still in phase two or phase no, we're in three, phase three, phase three, I think is where we're starting to get into a groove where we're getting some really good solid villains. Um, again, I'll stand by some of the earlier ones. Like I like red skull from cap one. I like Alexander Pierce from cap two. Um, there are some, I like the Mandarin twist, but not necessarily Killian himself. So like, there's been some good stuff, but I think now that we're in phase three, we're starting to see some just really good, solid overall villains and it's becoming more common. So. Yeah. Especially since we haven't reached the big bad of phase three yet. Yes. No, that, that'll be exciting to, to dig into. Yeah. So what we we have on our hands kind of a, a hobbit situation where we thought we were doing two and now it's turned into a trilogy and <laughs> um so we are going to be digging into some of the other villains for later phase three movies including the biggest bad of them all thanos in the next episode yes and thank you all so much for listening to this episode we we've been really having a blast with this series and we look forward to to finishing it off soon um if you want to stay updated on what nerd alert girls podcast is up to you can look us up on nerdalertgirls.tumblr.com. that's our website you could also email us at nerdalertgirlspodcast at gmail.com and also find us on twitter at nerdalertpod so definitely let us know if you have any favorite villains uh, out of the MCU or just favorite villains in general from pop culture or books or what have you that you use as a comparison point for, for how you judge villains. Yeah. yeah thoughts. Yeah. And it's, it's been a whole lot of fun to talk with you guys. And thanks as always for having me on your podcast, everybody out there, stay safe and stay nerdy. All right. We'll see you next time on Nerd Alert. Bye. Bye. Bye.